Hello and welcome to Codish, an exploration of the lives of modern developers. Join us as we dive into topics like languages and frameworks, data and event-driven architectures, and individuals and team productivity, all tailored to developers and engineering leaders. This episode is part of our DevLife series. So hi, my name is Saul Sanchez Diaz. I'm a success director with Salesforce, um, originally from Oaxaca, Mexico, and an area, indigenous area, predominantly um, dominated, if you will, or inhabited by uh, the Zapotecs, which is a an ethnic group from uh, back down south in Oaxaca. And uh, today we're going to have a pretty cool topic, which is the voice of the native and indigenous people in tech which is, um, you probably assume correctly, a very small voice as we don't have that many around, but um, we have the pleasure to find one who is a, a big one called Amelia Winger Bearskin. And uh, here's Amelia with us. Hi, Amelia, how are you? Hi, thank you so much for having me on your show. I've, I've been a very big fan of Kodish and I, I really enjoy the podcast and listening to developers sharing information with our community. So thank you so much for having me. I am a Seneca Cayuga Nation of Oklahoma Deer Clan. Um, we are also known as the Haudenosaunee, which is the Iroquois Confederacy of Six Nations. And I am a developer evangelist for Contentful. Awesome. I also have a podcast called wampum.codes, W-A-M-P-U-M.codes. Um, and I interview indigenous uh, native technologists who are doing creative things with new technologies um, for their communities and also just for the world. So um, it's a lot of fun talking to natives about the cool things they're up to and the funny stories that they have. So what is uh, what does wampum mean? Forgive my ignorance here, but it just... No, no, no. Yeah. I, I don't expect anyone to know I'm inspired by my um, my traditional uh, wampum. So wampum is like a shell um, that it's a type of animal that grows in the rivers in, in our territory, which our traditional territory is in um, the United States and Canada, the north, uh, east and west. So it goes from about Michigan all the way up to Quebec, and that would be our traditional lands. And we have um, wampum... Um, it's an animal that is in the rivers and it has this beautiful shell that's purple and white. So it's kind of like a binary structure. And we use that shell to make purple or white beads or beads that are have both the purple and the white. And then we use that as a type of coding system where we would, um, we would record the types of um, contracts that were decentralized and were um, came to an agreement through verbal conversation, um, through you know, argument, through storytelling in front of the collective. And then they would be ratified and agreed upon and they would create um, a woven structure called a wampum belt. Um, and, it, and the reason it's called a belt is really because people could tie it around their waist and carry it with them. And then you could go to the, a neighboring um, area or maybe if you are from the Seneca Nation, you could go to the Cayuga Nation. You could say, hey, this is my wampum belt that ratifies that we have made entered into a trade agreement agreement or we've agreed for help with crops or maybe we're trading certain things at certain amounts. Um, and when our, our, you know, our brothers and sisters from uh, Europe came and uh, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, founding fathers of the United States, uh, were very fascinated by this system of, of creating contracts. And they, uh, Thomas Jefferson spent a year with the um, with one in one of our largest cities in upstate New York, um, studying our Confederate democracy that was recorded into a wampum belt. And he actually, uh, 
modeled the United States Constitution after this specific wampum belt that showed our Confederate democracy. And it's interesting because George Washington was, you know, sent a letter um, to the other founding fathers saying that he wanted the original Constitution to be more like the Iroquois Confederate um, Constitution. And he was saddened by the inability to, to sh- let go of those shackles of like a, a Western way of thinking of a confederacy because he said that the Haudenosaunee people, the Iroquois nation, had a thousand years of a lasting peace um, of states that were both separate and equal and had this constitution as the core values to their lasting peace. Um, and so I think that's very inspiring to me because it was a coding system created by my tribe. It was the basis of a lasting Confederate democracy, a lasting peace and prosperity without war. Um, and I thought that was just really beautiful. And so I wanted to create a podcast about who are the new wampum makers <laughs> that are out there, who are the new coders. Absolutely. Wow, that's pretty awesome. Thanks for the explanation. That's pretty cool. And yeah, as you were talking about the wampum and and how, I guess, that wisdom and that process, you know, uh, was incorporated into into the Constitution of the United States. I remember a video that I saw of you presenting something similar, something around the along the lines of, um, I think your your phrase was "Don't colonize our future of data." That, that we yeah. need to be more inclusive and look at data from ancient civilizations or older civilizations and really try to understand and learn from them, you know, and see how we can extrapolate or overlay that on top of the technology and the things that we're trying to do here, right? I mean, could you, could you talk a little bit about that? I, I, I thought that was fascinating. Absolutely. I, you know, I like to use uh, different uh, new technologies to kind of as windows to understand other types of technologies, right? Like it's very easy for us to say it would be really cool to try out a city that was entirely run on, on blockchain. Um, I, I, when I was in New York, I recently moved to Oakland, California. It's very beautiful here. Uh, I used to live in New York and in New York, I was the founder of a nonprofit called Idea New Rochelle. And we were creating an AR and VR citizen toolkit for citizens to co-design their city with city planners. And um, I was part of a project from Bloomberg Philanthropies where we received um, the Bloomberg's Mayor's Challenge million dollars for our Citizen VR Toolkit in collaboration with the Mayor's Office of New Rochelle. And some of the other projects that were um, either in the city of Austin or other cities um, who also won this Mayor's Challenge were looking at blockchain specifically. We were looking at AR and VR. That was my specific project that that I built, but um, I was I was fascinated by the projects that were using blockchain, and, and a lot of the conversations I would have with them would they say, well, yeah, you know, we don't really have data on how uh, alternative economies would work, but we're really interested to see how these types of micropayments or or how a whole community could own. Um, own property or own value on the blockchain. And I and I started thinking, you know, actually we do have examples in this country um, on this very land of people who had decentralized ways of owning property and recording it on a blockchain. We just called it wampum. And so I, I think about that as, you know, if, if we say, well, it's diff- it, it is, you know, with machine learning, with, with data science, it's difficult to project out comes without um, data. And so you can say, well, we can model it on this small amount of data, or, you know, in, in this small time period. But if you include the data from from nations that people may have assumed were uh, too unsophisticated and yet have really sophisticated records in our wampum, um, 
Another example, of course, is in South America with the Kipu project and the type of records that Kipu recorded. Uh, we, we have systems of knot tying that the Inca used called Kipu. And a, a lot of those Kipus are, are, were saved and are maintained within museums and have been scanned. And, and the MIT Kipu Kipu Project actually created a Python library so that you could understand the data. So we have census data wow. for, for, you know, for a long time of, of, a, of a very large nation, right? The Inca mm -hmm. nation was so large yeah. and they kept very detailed records of their census data, of the water levels. So we really do have data that can go back hundreds of years. And some, some people have said to me, and you know, at that specific talk that you're referring to, someone did ask me, they said, you know, just more data isn't better. And I said, mm -hmm. no. But a narrower understanding of data is a way of colonizing our future. And I think mm -hmm. that I would ask us not to do that, to say we have data of when people lived in a different type of harmony with our planet like we do with the Kipu Project. And just as we have data with Wampum of how people lived in a decentralized and co-owned state of peace. So yeah. and, and without concepts of slavery or, or other things that, that made uh, that piece, you know, or economic um, disparities happen. Right. And so since we have that data, we can look at it. We don't have to move into the future blind. And I think it's a way that we can decolonize our future is by saying and accepting that we do we do have records. We have we do have alternative systems and we can look at them. And if we value them, they can help us um, be informed on how we can move into the future with AI, with blockchain, with uh, with data science um, and, and having that be more inclusive. No, that's, that sounds great. I mean, and that's what I loved about, you know, it was a short conversation, but it was very meaningful and powerful. You know, it's like, how do you incorporate other cultures right into this? How is it that you don't, you don't drive the truth, if you will, you know, just based on your background and the power that you have to, to drive it right and impose it on the world, but look at other things and be almost like autocritical, self-critical, and then say, oh, wait, you know what? I wasn't thinking about this. So I didn't consider this or that element, right, of that culture that is super cool. Let me see how I can incorporate that, learn from that, and move forward. So that, that was pretty fascinating. Um, and, you know, that's something that, that's, that's a theme that it's obviously kind of common, right? I feel like, um, you know, when we think about, let's say, the Mayans, right, and, and how they build their pyramids and their buildings and, and the amazing alignment that they have, you know, uh, with some of the stars and, and the different, you know, events that happen throughout the year, et cetera. I mean, it's just pretty, pretty incredible, right, that, that they had that type of notion and, and advanced knowledge to do that, right? But, Absolutely. But it, it doesn't sound like a natural thing that, that some of our indigenous people would have, you know, based on what we hear from from, you know, uh, the, the, the norm of society today, right, based on who is in power and who is in charge of, of, of sort of like qualifying what is smart and what isn't. So it's pretty cool that you were opening that window to, you know, to that knowledge to, to transpire and be, and be present here in the, in the technology world. I think that was pretty amazing. Well, you know, I had this, I was very fortunate in, um, in 2019 to be able to go and meet uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama in um, Dharmashala, India. And he, he spoke to the group of delegates who were part of a conference um, of fostering universal ethics. And I was a representative in tech and AI, along with um, a couple of other of those of us who are <laughs> technologists. And mm -hmm. something that really moved me is when he was talking to the group about the thousands of years of, um, of neurology and science that the, that 
India had on, especially on the topic of, of the mind and body connection and how saddened he was that so much of these archives and libraries were destroyed, um, through colonization. And, mm-hmm. and he's, his, one of his role, um, goals is to reconnect with that information to, and to take what is left and, uh, help more people uh, understand the long history of neurology and science mm-hmm. in India from their perspective. And I thought it was really beautiful. Um, and I, I think there's indigenous people all over the world are starting to reconnect with their, their own archives and with their own data. And we have just hundreds and hundreds of years of that. And I think it's really beautiful that there, there are people who have been studying the mind and body connection in a very scientific way. Mm-hmm before Western science was ready and, uh, and, and open to it. And now we are ready and we are open to it as a global community. And I think it's important to look back at that uh, and to include that in our archive. Absolutely. And I have been like, um, I've been meditating for, for a few years now and I can tell you that it's a great uh, tool to um, help you be mindful, you know, be present, right? Um, and it's, it's, it's continuous work, right? I mean, it's a, it's a lifetime work. You know, you have to think about yourself, you have to meditate, and, and, and you get to certain stages in which you're aware of things that you were not really seeing before, right? And, and, uh, and it's interesting, too, because it seems like science, lately science has validated the importance of, let's say, meditating and what it does to the brain in terms of expanding the elasticity, right? Creating connections between neurons that were not connected before, et cetera. And so, um, so it looks like finally the Western civilization is not only ready to practice it, but really to understand scientifically how is it that, you know, it provides a benefit to the body and to the mind, you know, in general. So it's, uh, it's super interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so how did you, um, how do you go from, do you live most of your life in Oklahoma or? Um, I lived for a part of my life in Oklahoma near my reservation. Um, I lived in Little Rock. My reservation's in Miama, Oklahoma. Um, and then I moved upstate New York um, to the site of our largest uh, ancestral city, uh, which was known as Ganondagan. So I moved out um, in the sort of rural area near Rochester, New York, um, which is near the Salamanca and Allegheny Reservation. So even though my family is descended from that area during the Trail of Tears um, from Andrew Jackson's uh, Indian Removal Act, um, the families were separated and some of the Iroquois escaped to Canada and some were relocated uh, by the U.S. government to Oklahoma to a reservation. So that is where my family is and where my reservation is. But my mom really wanted, she always wanted, she grew up actually in California and uh, and on the reservation, kind of both were in Oklahoma and L.A., which was very... um, that's also sort of part of our relocation too. We were, a lot of us were moved from the reservation to Los Angeles area in the forties and fifties. Um, and so she always wanted to go to the ancestral land and to see mm-hmm. the nature of, of, um, of her ancestors and, you know, not, you know, her very close relatives to her aunts and uncles who still live there. And so she moved us there near Ganondagan and she was the education director at the center Ganondagan, which is a state historic site as, as they um, are excavating the city and sort of, they even have built long houses there to connect them um and they have education center and everything so she moved there and so i grew up in upstate new york in my ancestral land and then uh moved to new york city uh, to brooklyn um but i've lived in other places too i've lived in austin texas and i've lived in nashville as well how do you how do you get into tech how do you get into art i mean i I looked at your website and it's pretty impressive you know the the type of art that you put together uh different events that you have worked with with other technology people what inspired you to go into tech 
Well, you know, actually, when I was very small, I was about five, uh, and I really loved to make art. I loved to draw. I loved to craft. I like, you know, was always, you know, asking my dad for more materials and more space and just literally taking over yeah. any space that was possible in the house as like art project land. And finally, my dad said, okay, if you really want to be an artist, I have the tool for you. And he bought me a Commodore 64 and a Koala pad. And he said, if you can learn how to make art on this, this is going to be the future. And at the time, of course, in order to get any kind of basic animation or drawing, it was like so much code because you know? <laughs> it was not yeah. like a, there was no like GUI interface or anything yep. like that. And so yep. I just had to learn a lot of like Fortran and, you know, code yep. all different, you know, ways to make animations or to make music or to make, uh, you know, drawings. And as, you know, I grew up, I, my father, he worked for, um, for Eastman Kodak. He was, uh, uh, in their innovation lab and actually was part of the team that built the first digital camera. And so he always had like the newest computer at work. So whenever that one became old, he like would bring it home and be like, all right, use that one. So I'd like then a Macintosh and then, you know, I had all the, you know, all the different like iterations of, of computers for, for making creative things. So I always from a young age was like, well, to be an artist, I need to be a programmer. (laughs) And um, yeah, so I just, it never seemed weird or odd to me. And then, and I I usually tell people, I say, I've been doing the same thing since I was five, but the name for it has changed, (laughs) you know, (laughs) quite a bit. And so some, sometimes in my life, people will say, oh, you're, you're a, a new media artist, or you are a creative technologist, or you're a creative coder. And I'm like, all those names are fine. But I've been doing the same thing. <laughs> I was yeah. just making creative um, and beautiful things um, with code. So, um, yeah, to me, I'm kind of just doing the same thing. <laughs> and now as a developer evangelist, I feel like I'm, I'm still doing those same things. <laughs> yeah. No, that's pretty awesome. I mean, I, I looked at your, uh, like I said, your work and your website, you know, uh, the three-bit work. Mm-hmm. And it looks pretty amazing. I just love the the, the imagery and, and and you know. How, could you talk a little bit about the creative process involved in that? Sure. Yeah. Actually, um, a, a museum um, called uh, Mia, the Minneapolis Institute of Art, was uh, creating the I think the the largest to date survey of um, Native women um, artists, and they asked if I had something that I would like to show and I showed them a bunch of the VR work I made and they were like okay this we're not ready to show with headsets and that you know like this is a 50 person show and in order to have a headset I was trying to explain them they would need an attendant there so that people don't like knock into the other artwork you know because you're blindfolded in VR and they were like okay no Amelia no (laughs) like like, yes it's cool but we're not ready for VR yet not not this show the show needs to tour to like all these other museums they're not ready for it this is you know it's a thing and then I said oh well maybe I won't get to show in this show because I don't really you know, I was doing other things and I didn't, I was kind of busy. And then one of the curators or assistant curators found my Instagram and they said, what are these? And I said, Oh no. Well, look, that's like, I don't know if that's art or not because I used to go, you know, I I travel a ton as a developer evangelist, you travel a ton. um, And I, I used to, when I traveled all the time as a professor or in various jobs I've had, I used to bead on the planes. Um, and I just do like my traditional beating. And it was just for fun. You know, it was something yeah. I made um, to pass the time. And because I don't really like planes. And <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> I'm not like I get nervous. But then, you know, after 9-11, it was very difficult to bring a lot of my beating equipment online uh, uh, on planes. Because people would say like, oh, you can't have a scissors. This is too pointy. But you need really pointy scissors in order to do the beating. And they would say oh, sometimes my needles were long and they're made of porcupine or something. And they're like, what is this? <laughs> You know, yeah. what, is this? what are these things? And I, so I, I started 
really missing doing that on planes. And I said, well, you know what? I'm a technologist. I'm just going to do my same beadwork patterns and I'm just going to find an app that I like and I'm going to do, I'm going to still practice my traditional craft and I'm just going to do it on the phone because I'm, you know, an indigenous person in 21st century and we just, Mm -hmm. we're going to do it. And so I found a couple of 3D um, design apps um, where I could kind of make 3D beads, right? Mm -hmm. And then I started making my same patterns, but in uh, 3D form. And then the nice thing about that is I could export those um, as like OBJs and bring them into something like Unity or Cinema 4D or Blender, yeah. And I could remix them and I could make videos with them and then I could they could kind of have another life of their own. And I hadn't done that yet. I just had only taken screenshots of like some of the remixes in Cinema 4D and Blender. And um, the assistant curator was like, just just do that. Show those. Show those. <laughs> and I said, well, that's not really art. And he's like, well, make it into art. Then just yeah. do it. You know, like you have them, make them into art. And I said, okay. So I took the files and I put them into Cinema 4D and then put them into After Effects. And I made um, like a, a short film with these 3D uh, beats. And then they took two screens. There were like very large 8K screens that we're using actually for this um, beautiful exhibition that they had there that was an underwater city, oh. uh, like an ancient... Uh, Grecian underwater city that had, you know, flooded and preserved. It was very beautiful. Um, and it was a temple of, um, oh, I'm trying to remember the god. It was a, a Egyptian god. <laughs> it was okay. really yeah. beautiful. I don't remember now, but oh, they please. had these gorgeous 8K, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I know. I yeah. don't know. It was like, I don't remember now, but I went through the exhibition there. Yeah. And they had these gorgeous um, 8K screens on the walls. And, and then the video was you were underwater discovering oh. this underwater, you know, city. And I was like, wow, those are beautiful. Let's use them. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they put they took two of them and turned them on like portrait mode and then put them together. So they created a perfect square. Uh-huh. And then I, you know, I, I had ex- I exported the video in such a way that you could kind of stitch it together. And then it just it is in this kind of beautiful square. Um so that's that's what I did. That that's what that three D beadwork piece is. Wow. Do you do you continue to do that, or are you are you evolving your art form into something different now? Or yeah, I always try to evolve. I mean, um, that that piece luckily gets to kind of have its own life. I think right now it might still be at the Frist Museum in Nashville, um, which Ooh. is fun because I used to teach at Vanderbilt University and I used to teach animation there. So I was like, oh, I hope oh, my wow. old students. <laughs> you want to um, see my work go to the museum but this is the first time that i've ever done podcasting and um it's been really generative and obviously during um you know the sheltering in place here in california it's been really wonderful to ha- still be able to talk to people about their creative practice and their what cool things they're doing with code and um vr or anything that they're doing so i've even though um i don't know what type of artistic practice podcasting is but it's been really generative for me and i've i've been really lucky to feel connected to my indigenous community but then also to just talk about ideas with other people um so that's kind of my new form is really diving into audio um i do have a background in audio because when i was 15 i was an opera singer and i toured the world and i sang in operas and i i just love the human voice it's really um it's a it's a beautiful instrument and so i do usually try to have music and but most specifically the human voice in a lot of the work that i do so for me podcasting is just very um it's very it's like nutritional value yeah, no, <laughs> that's, awesome. that's great yeah. 
<laughs> that's, that's great to hear. So what's the, uh, what's the type of people who you typically host in your, in your podcast? It's usually people who are doing creative things with technology in a way that helps their community. And that's a very, very, very broad mm. <laughs> topic. Um, and I'll give you some examples. Like, for instance, um, the very first uh, person that I had on my show, Asha Viraswamy, who's Seneca uh, from the Salamanca Reservation in New York, um, she talked about her startup where she creates an AR, it's also VR, but AR primarily um, system for actors to do live performances with their lines as an overlay. So you can kind of imagine um, it could be a seen as training for um for stage acting, because it's kind of like having cue cards right in your field of vision. But I think more interestingly, it also could be a way in which audience or external factors could interact with the actors, right? So you could have um, a type of way where you're you know, controlling the lines that actors are given, and it could al almost be used for like a comedic effect as well, too. So it's a pretty interesting um, mm -hmm. startup and a tool that she's created for live performance and AR. And then we also started kind of going off <laughs> topic and talking about... <laughs> Um, you know, in reservations are fit in the US famously have casinos and a mm -hmm. lot of people see them as being like, I don't know, like you, you would say like opera is very, you know, high end and casino entertainment would be like very low end or something. But mm -hmm. she said, why don't we re-embrace the casino as being this like multimedia space of types of entertainment that we could maybe see people coming for the casino, but also being able to go to an AR or VR experience and then understanding our culture because we don't really get to share our culture at casinos. We're just sharing these like video games and other yeah, kind of things, yeah. but, but we have beautiful cultures. And I think that it would be, it would be cool to reimagine those as, as cultural hubs. And, um, and I kind of joked to her on there that it reminded me of the TV show, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, <laughs> where, <laughs> where they had like a holodeck, but then they also had like the bar area with like the casino yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I was like they're just gonna be like deep space nine so that was one of the conversations I had um and then I also had um you know another person I think we talked about a little bit earlier was Joey Cliff who is a um he's a writer a and a comedian and a, a comedy performer and um you might be like oh what does that have to do with tech but he actually has the largest Facebook group um 8,000 plus people um for comedians in LA to share photos of their cats. Wow. <laughs> and wow. so he uses like social media and does these bits on like Twitter or on social media, or he, he organized um, with the comedian Tig Notaro. Um, she famously has uh, other comedians take over her Twitter and kind of give amplify their voice. And, and he, communicated with her and said, you know, I think it would be cool if you did a whole month of just native comedians. And she said, yeah, let's do this. And so he organized a Twitter takeover that every week of this of this month, um, different uh, native co comedians and personalities came and took over uh, Tig's uh, Twitter. And I got to be one of them. And I oh. took it over. And I just, of course, did animal memes. I just made animal memes. The whole time. <laughs> that's like, you know, that's my vibe. But, um, but yeah, so there's there. So even though you're like, okay, Joey's not a coder and Asha is a coder, but Joey's using social media and, um, and technology in, in different, in totally unique ways and, and amplifying his community in a different way. So, uh, and a lot of the people, I would say like a majority of the people on my podcast are in the AR, VR, creative technology and creative AI space, just because that's where I come from. So it's a lot of my friends, you know, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but some people are kind of like, you know, from, from very different backgrounds. Um, one of the guests that I had, um, Rue, 
uh, Desalyn George Warren. He it was actually one of my students at Vanderbilt, and he started coding just a year ago and has been making an app for his Catawba language on his reservation for a language preservation project. And I thought wow. that was really cool to feature him. And he is an opera singer too. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. I know, I know. So it's it's yeah, they're they're a real diverse bunch from you know nations all um, all over. And um, yeah, it's 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 a really fun bunch. We recently. The MIT co-creation studio at Open Doc Lab in, in collaboration with the MacArthur Foundation, Mozilla Foundation, and um, and, and many others, um, we had a panel of all of the guests of Wampum.codes got together and had a panel. And then the questions that were asked to us were from the Indigenous Screen Office from, uh, from Canada. And so that was really fun to just have wow. all like 10 of us <laughs> up there yeah. on the Zoom screen, yeah. you know, everyone chatting. And it was just, that was... Um, I, I could not have asked for anything uh, more exciting in my week than to just see all the people that I had gotten to speak one-on-one -on -one with get to meet each other, you know? Wow, that's pretty cool. How do you see the uh, the native youth? I mean, are they is there a lot of youth interested in technology or, you know, what is what are the tendencies or the areas that typical native youth, you know, gravitators? Like, is it more art or technology or more like politics or, or business? Yeah, I mean, I think we're we're definitely as diverse as as, as any population in that way. Um, you know, a lot of us in the US have gone through the program ACES, um, which is like the American uh, Associa uh, Indian Association of Sciences. And they have a lot of wonderful STEM programs where they give um, scholarships for undergraduates who are studying in the STEM fields. Um, both of my sisters won those grants. I didn't, <laughs> but <Yeah>. my two <laughs> sisters did. <laughs> they won that scholarship. And um, yeah, so I, and I think, um, I, you know, when I talk um, or when I first started telling people about my podcast, they were like, yeah. how many people are you going to get on your show? It's like, how many natives make VR? And I was like, a lot. <laughs> <You know? laughs> They're like, think I'm going to have two episodes and then be like, Ugh. I'm like, no, <laughs> there's a lot. And I, I think it's because, you know, the, the, the younger generation, the millennials, the Zoomers, whatever you want to call them. I think yeah. they're very digital native. They're digital native natives. And um, they there's a lower barrier of entry in communicating to your community, to your other friends um, yeah. on, in online formats than there is if you're like, oh, I'm going to get a huge expensive camera and get a huge crew and make a film. You know, it's just a lower barrier of entry. And I think a lot of them, it, they don't, it doesn't even become a consideration of like, as a native person, am I doing this? It's just they're a member of their generation and they're, they're interested in exploring um, technology because they interact with it so much. Oh. Uh one of the cool things that I that I learned about you as I was doing a little bit of homework, you know, for this interview for this podcast is um, talking about the decentralizing, uh, I guess, storytelling or or uh, how do you, how do you call it? Um, talking to everybody, right? Um, yeah. You know, w w what is that concept? If you if you could explain to to us here, w what do you mean by that? I mean, I I read the article and everything, yeah. and I, I get it, but I mean, it would be great. I mean, I love people to know and understand that. I wrote this article, um, decentralized storytelling, before uh, decentral. Everyone was talking about decentralization. Decentralization was talking to everyone, mm. and um, I guess my core thesis was really that new forms of storytelling are are 
are have a lot of power and a lot of vibrance within the decentralized story space. And I use examples, um, modern examples, um, like uh, things like Homestuck, where you have uh, an author and animator and creator who's created a story world. And then within that story world, anyone who writes fan fiction or comments in his live chats or comments to each other or creates sort of their own splinter narratives within that world, it, it he includes it into the canon so that it becomes part of the core story. And that if you're talking about Homestuck, the game, the video game, the um, the animations, the comic mm-hmm. book, it, it, everything that's fan created is not seen as like a separate thing. It's part of the larger whole. It's also similar to things in game worlds too, where um, you, you know you have a group of people who have a Minecraft server and they're creating um, story worlds together and they're building stories mm-hmm. together. And so I, I connect that back to the ways in which, um, at least in, in my tribe, we have this concept that anything that you want to last um, that is for the benefit of your community, you should think of a way in which you can encode it for the next seven generations. And that anything that I'm doing now is really based on the code of the seven generations before me. And so constantly being in communication, both with our ancestors and our our descendants, um, helps us kind of understand story worlds in a different way. Like if you need to communicate uh, a scientific technology um, Mm -hmm. to future generations around uh, organizing for crops or preparing for planting season, which is a technology, right? <laughs> like that's yeah, the, yeah. the basis of your culture. Um, we would encode those into stories. And then usually in that story, there was like a moral message, a scientific tip, and then also maybe something that was about the landscape mm-hmm. or about uh, a natural phenomena or maybe about an animal so that that way it became, it kind of has this multi-layer uh, approach so that people will continue to tell the story because they'll be like, oh, this is the story about bear. But the story about bear also teaches you about planting, but the story about bear also teaches you how to be kind. So it's like if it has this multiple steps to it, it becomes something that's sticky and then it becomes something that you can pass down and it becomes something that becomes core to your mythology and your culture. But but without all of those steps together, I'm sure there are tons of stories that we've forgotten, right? But the ones that we haven't, the ones that we haven't forgotten, how kind of that trifecta of information in them. And um, I believe it's the same with how we want to encode media now, where we're looking at the ways in which people are creating game worlds or creating um, space. I, I do, I have a son and he's 18 and I do see the way that he communicates story. It's fully interactive with his friend group. He's not really interested in anything linear like linear music or linear films or linear TV shows. He thinks it's super weird that I watch TV or I watch movies. <laughs> he's just like, nope, that's boring. He wants to go be, have like zoom on one or, um, Discord on one, you know, Twitch on another window. Another window is YouTube. And then another window is the game that they're playing. And they're all like, all of these windows are happening at the same time. And the chat is open to these 10 people that are all talking at the same time and narrating their experiences across all these windows. And I think, um, I think that's interesting. <laughs> it's yeah. really interesting to me how it is. It are they're already building these decentralized story worlds and they don't, they don't care that these platforms were not maybe designed to work. All, all in this way. They don't even need an API to connect them. They're all just open at the same time. Yeah. You know? uh, do you uh, do you get to hang out uh, back home much? Like go back to the uh, around the reservation, talk to the youth, and and you know, uh, sort of like serve as a an inspiration or, or as a role model. I mean, you I mean, you inspire me, and I'm an older oh. man already. <laughs> you know, so so I would assume that you know younger people be fascinated by by 
by all the the things that you have achieved, how is it that you're able to to machine, you know, all these different media, right? And and you know, art and technology, etc., into one super cool experience, you know. I think mentorship is the most uh, fulfilling part of my life, and um, because of that, I try to jam pack my life with it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yes. I loved being a professor, and um, I, I won't ever stop being a teacher and a mentor, no matter what my job title is. Luckily, as a developer evangelist, that is what you do, which is wonderful. Um, you are a mentor to your com- community, and um, some of the my favorite ways in the upcoming months that I'm mentoring is I'm a uh, advisor and a mentor for the Sundance Institute's New Frontiers uh, Story Lab, which is now going to be online. And I'm very excited to meet that new group. And there is a, a group of Indigenous uh, VR creators, which is awesome. awesome. Wow. And then um, I also am I'm working with the uh, the Native and Indigenous program at Sundance Institute. Um, we're, we're imagining uh, a type of a summit for uh, for for emerging native uh, filmmakers and and technologists and people working across these new uh, emerging media f- fields. And we're trying to find a fun way of having that gathering so that it's not just kind of another Zoom panel. Um, and we'd love it to be more immersive and more in game world or, or you know, something. So we're, we're, we're designing that. And then I hope that we can design a fun space where the... Um, the younger generations of uh, indigenous youth can find um, find collaborators and friends, and then also be mentored. But I want it to be fun, so we're trying we're trying out a bunch of things. Yeah. So I don't I don't know what it's going to be yet, but we're we're just we're figuring it out. And I'm very inspired by the um, the indigenous program at Sundance Institute since it's one of the longest or you know longest supporting of. Um, indigenous filmmakers in in the US and in the world. And when it was formed, when the Sundance Institute was formed, it was one of its core goals was to help um, indigenous filmmakers. So um, I always love to give back to that community and Bird Running Water is has been leading it for a while now. And he's just an inspiration to me. So I'm happy to help others. <laughs> Whenever he asks me, awesome. I, I never say no. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, that is awesome. That's fascinating. And you said you're kind of like relatively new to the Bay Area. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I moved here for the for, for my job at Contentful. Um, I moved from Brooklyn. Um, I was living in Brooklyn and I moved. I live in Oakland now. And yeah, I'm new. I would love to meet um, more people. I started like an indigenous group on Nextdoor. <laughs> oh, wow. So that I can meet other, you know, indigenous people in very close to my neighborhood. And, and there are a lot of awesome people that have joined it. And so um, when we're done with sheltering in place, I would love to get back to going to the red market and other kind yeah. of spaces yeah. for indigenous people. So, yeah. Yeah, no, it's pretty amazing. And then it's kind of like the mecca of technology too, right? I mean, have you have you been super excited to be in the in the epicenter of technology here in the Silicon Valley and, and yeah, around? I mean, I'm very lucky because my job as a um, as a developer evangelist means that I I am required to go to meetups and I'm required to speak at them and I'm required to host them, and so that's wonderful because it just means a second I get here, I you know. You, you just whether you have reservations or not, you got to get out there. You know, you got to get out there, meet people, and 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 meet people from all different kinds of companies. I've I've gone to Salesforce meetups, and um, yeah, so it's it's been really a sort of a fast way of getting to know the community here. And I I would go to three meetups a week, you know, just wow. to kind of get, get involved and meet people. And um, yeah, it's been really wonderful. Yeah, and I and I do love the other developer evangelists. We're very chatty people, right? <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> um, I, 
uh, you know, usually the DevRel meetups are somewhere in the Salesforce tower, you know, yeah. <laughs> so I always go up there and like, depending on what, you know, if it's, um, you know, who's hosting it and whatnot and um, I get to meet the other DevRels. They're great people to, it's a great group to land in. If you're like, hi, I'm brand new. I don't know anyone. Then they're all like, no problem. We know everything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they're very wow. chatty and they're community oriented and they are help, they're helpers. And, you know, it's a wonderful, uh-huh. you meet other developer evangelists uh-huh. and they just, they want to introduce you to everyone. <laughs> Yeah. 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 Wow. That's pretty awesome. And I think that's a, that's a, I mean, that job totally fits your personality. It's simply, uh, you sound pretty social and chatty and and engaging, you know, and and very generous with your time as well. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a, it's a very good fit for my personality because I'll, I'll ask, sometimes I'll ask my, my boss, I'm like, is it okay if I just spend this day mentoring this group of developers? He's like, that is your job, you know? I'm like, all right, all right, right. (laughs) Okay, good. (laughs) You don't have to ask for permission. Go right, ahead. right. That's, your <laughs> That's hilarious. Do you mentor developers in, in certain type of uh, technology or, or language or, 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 or what is the actual uh, job of, uh, of, of a person like you? Uh, yeah, it would definitely. It's definitely dependent. Sometimes, somewhat is dependent on your product. Um, since we are a content, we're a headless uh, CMS uh, content management platform. Um, a lot of what I do is maybe in the Jamstack community or in you know talking about other APIs um, and static site generators and kind of those fun things. Um, but because I do have a background in in VR and AR and XR, um, I do speak a lot at those kind of meetups and mentor people in in those fields. Since that's kind of where I have the, maybe the most experience. Um, and yeah, and when we're a mentor, we're mentoring beginners who are maybe interested in moving to Jamstack or interested in making cool things with Contentful. But we also mentor people on technologies that it's, you know, doesn't matter if you use Contentful or not, if you just are interested in learning to code or if you're a women in React group or, you know, lots of different types of development groups. It, it doesn't have to just be people have used, you know, our specific product it's it's really about being a good community member yeah well um i'm super flattered that you were um able to spend an hour with me here talking in this podcast oh, it's been my I, really, I really appreciate it i i enjoyed every single word and sentence that you said and um, i'm very grateful again to have your time here um and uh before we close you know uh one of the things that we're doing here in windforce the um the group that I am part of here at, at Salesforce, you know, the quality group that uh, represents uh, indigenous people, it's we um, open or close events with the um, with the land acknowledgement. You know, we basically, uh, and this is nothing complicated. We don't, we don't, we don't sing or say any, anything special other than, you know, we just want to acknowledge the land that we are on today. And that was Ohlone land, you know, and Ohlone people were the original custodians of this land, right? And we want to, honor their memory by being respectful, you know, and, and walking with that um, around here with that acknowledgement and that uh, sensitivity. So um, thank yeah. you. That's beautiful. I just wanted to share that. But yeah, uh, but yeah thanks a lot, Amelia. I appreciate you um, again being here with me and um, stay safe. Okay. Thank you. You too. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Kodish podcast. Codish is produced by Heroku, the easiest way to deploy, manage, and scale your applications in the cloud. If you'd like to learn more about Codish or any Heroku's podcast, please visit heroku.com slash podcasts.